right, well, good morning. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I don't know you, um, I would love to, to get to know you. So we're grateful that you're here. And I'm really thankful to be with you today. It's definitely summer. I think this week showed that. The days are long and hot and everyone is kind of in and out and on vacation. Um, Our family just got back from the beach a week ago and so we've had some time away and, and I know many of you have had time away as well. And summertime for me personally is somewhat of a difficult time. It's it's difficult emotionally. It's a little difficult spiritually. And like, I'll be okay. Like, I'm getting out of bed in the mornings. I'm not saying I'm depressed. But if I'm really open, hopefully I'm always honest, but if I'm really open, I would say that summertime is more difficult for me than most of the rest of the year. Emotionally, spiritually, um, and when I think about that, it, it's really kind of funny because I think a lot of it revolves around my personality. Like, summer doesn't serve me very well in my personality because I'm a person that enjoys getting things done and being productive. And if things are broken and they need to be fixed, well, I enjoy fixing them. And summer's just a mess. I mean, kids are out of school and schedules are all up in the air. And I can find myself feeling really unproductive. In the summer. And over the years, I've found that there are a few things that I've been able to incorporate into my life that kind of help to relieve or alleviate that melancholy that I feel sometimes in the summer. But, but more than anything, what I've come to discover is this that I need God's grace, particularly in the summer. Now, I know that sounds completely idiotic. Like what I just said, that I struggle in the summer, that I've just been on vacation, and that I struggle to rest. Like that sounds crazy, right? But that's what I feel. I mean, if you want to know what I feel, this is what my summers in the past have felt like. I know this isn't true. I know this sounds crazy. This is what summer feels like to me. It feels like I'm up here and everybody else is down there. And they're all drinking on the beach and playing volleyball and having fun. And I'm up here watching them in my corner churning out another sermon or putting together another discipleship curriculum. And everybody else is having fun and I'm just up here just working. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, isn't that like the most idiotic thing you've ever heard almost? Isn't that crazy? But that's what I feel like. And I've come to see how much I am in need of God's grace, particularly to be able to rest, particularly to be okay being me when I don't have the capacity to be really productive. You see how much we need the gospel? We're in this series called Summer of Grace, and it's by no accident. I chose it. And y'all probably think I chose it for you, and I mean, I did a little bit. I knew if we were in an Old Testament book, and it was going to be hard for y'all to follow it if we're just like churning through the life of David, and you're in and out, you know, each week with vacation and stuff going on. But that was partially it. I'll be, I'll be really honest and say, I kind of chose it for me. 
Because I need to be reminded of God's grace. I need to experience God's grace. I think grace is probably one of the most popular words within the Christian religion. I think it's probably one of the most misunderstood words within the Christian life. I mean, we honestly have almost no idea what grace means. Like to know it. I'm not talking about it in our heads, but to know it. I mean, what, what does grace even mean to start with? Like somebody came up with an acronym and said, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, that's a pretty good start, right? Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, we could do something with that. But what, how does that help me tomorrow morning? When I wake up going, mmm, it's Monday. Mmm, it's summer. Everything's up in the air. Kids are going here, there, and everywhere. I don't feel like everything's in place. How does God's grace help me then? At its simplest version, grace is simply Jesus. And we need Jesus daily. And I think that too often when we think about grace... If we use a ship analogy, too often when we think about grace, we think that grace is, is the life preserver that was tossed to us. And that we grab hold of Jesus. And he brought us back to the, the heavenly boat, right? That, that's, that's headed for that great eternal shore. That's not grace. I mean, that's a part of grace. But grace, if it's a sailboat, grace is the sails, I mean, it's our power for living. My goodness, grace is the ship itself that even enables us to remain afloat. Grace is the fact that God has rescued us from our sin. That God has rescued us from our going astray and trying to make a life for ourselves without Him. That we've denied Him. And grace is the fact that God has given us all of his riches. That he's adopted us. That he has lavishly poured his love on us so much that, doggone it, he likes us. And most of you don't believe that. So I struggle to believe it. Grace is amazing. But here's one of the problems. Grace is the fact that we have been saved. And grace is deeply connected to our sin. But I was, I was with a mentor last week, and um, I'm kind of a mess today. Like, if I can just say that out front, like a good mess. So, like, if I start crying in the middle of my sermon or something, it's okay. Um, I've been doing group therapy for the last three days with ten other pastors and our wives, and so we're all kind of a mess in a good way. But um, Jeff Schulte said this last week, and I was like, man, that's profound. He said, if my need for God's grace, I think I've got this for you on screen. Yeah, if my need for God's grace is limited to my sin, then my need for Christ becomes less as I grow up into him. And that's a problem. You get what he's saying there? He's saying, yeah, God's grace is directly connected to my sin. But if I see my sin as being something in the past, and if I see salvation as only being something in the past, and if I'm like, God saved me, and now I'm good, and I'm just on that, that, that boat of grace, like twiddling my thumbs, waiting for that eternal shore, 
well, then I don't really need God that much anymore. But the Bible says, Paul always, he talks about the fact that we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. And so grace is needed for today. And we need grace, yes, for our sin. But we need grace for even so much more. I don't want to say than just our sin, but we need grace for more than our sin. We need Jesus every day. So, I know this is like a long runway to take off for this message, okay? So, long runway, short flight. All right? Stick with me. So, when I think about grace, there's a passage that instantly comes to mind. We're also saying we're going to preach some of our favorite passages on grace this summer. Whoever's teaching. Matthew 11, for me, it just like, it comes to mind like that. And, and it's a passage that's really familiar to you. You've probably heard a lot of pastors quote it. I mean, if you attend church... It goes like this. It says, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who, the King James says, are weary. That's how I memorize it. Come to me, all who are weary, or all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I just want to ask a question. Are you weary? I'm not talking about physical weariness. I know that some of you are physically weary. There's some new moms here in the room and some new dads. And you're like, you're physically weary. You're up all night. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I got three-year-olds and I'm physically weary. Like... When's it going to go away? It does go away. But I'm not talking about just physical weariness. Are you weary? Like, are you weary spiritually? Because I think there's some of you who are in the room, and you're just going through the motions. But in your subconscious, you're kind of thinking, like, I'm going to keep going through the motions, but I don't really believe it's worth it. Which tells me that it's just a matter of time before you stop going through the motions. Because for most people in the Christian church, the way that the Western culture has set it up, the Western church has set the Christian church up for people to be able to go through the motions for about 20 years. And I, it, about two decades is what most people can sustain. You look at your parents and you wonder why they don't attend church anymore, but they brought you up in church. In about 20 years, you just say, I just don't think it's worth it anymore. How many of you are tired and you're weary emotionally? I mean, you, you're weary from managing your spouse and the people that are in the room with you and being so concerned that everybody's okay so that you can be okay with yourself. Like some of you are pretty weary. How many of you can say on a regular basis, I am joyful and I am content. Jesus is saying, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will show you what it means to truly live. And I'm not talking about how much money you have or which economic class you're in. I'm talking about joyfulness 
and contentedness, even in the kind of pain and suffering where Paul would say, man, I'm joyful and my heart's for you. Oh, by the way, I'm in chains. Like, did I mention that? It's the end of the letter. Paul just mentioned, like, you'd find out at the end of the letter. Maybe he wouldn't even say it. Oh, by the way, I'm in chains. Like, forgot to mention that. So overcome with joyfulness. Like, how do you find that kind of living? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. So really quick, I want to I walk through grace for resting. I just want to try to answer these three quick questions. How do we get it? Why don't we get it? And then how do we keep it? How do we get it? Why don't we get it? And then how do we keep it? So grace for resting. How do we get it? Jesus would extend grace to the most unlikely of people. The word grace in the Greek, if, if you look at it in the English, it's uh, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. We get our word charity from it. So Jesus would extend amazing charity to people consistently throughout his life. I mean, Jesus showed kindness to people who were despised by religious leaders. But don't get too down on the religious leaders. Because Jesus showed grace to people that you and I despise. So if Jesus were here today, Jesus would be out there on Lamar... And when you and I drive up and down Lamar, I know we try not to, and we go, oh, man, she looks like she's out there prostituting. Jesus would pull over, and he would have a conversation with her. I mean, Jesus would show grace to people. We don't even like the IRS, right? I mean, Jesus should show grace to tax collectors. They were charging people. Given that money, if it were modern day times, it would be like somebody who charges you your taxes, gives it to the Russians, and then says double it and skims that off the top for themselves. That's what was going on. Tax collectors giving money to the Romans and then saying, oh, and this is what you owe. And you didn't know how much you owed. Over and above that, they would just take that for themselves. And Jesus would show them grace. Jesus would show grace to lepers. Now, we have no idea what lepers are like. I promise you, you don't know what a leper is like unless you've been to another country or unless you've been around a dead body. And most of you haven't been around a dead body. I mean, not one in a, I'm not talking about a dead body in a sterile environment. I'm talking about a dead body like, like Matt sees, like a police officer sees, one that's been sitting there for a few days. Because when you get that stench in your nose, Matt, Matt reminded me the other day, he was like, I remember why... Policemen carry cigars sometimes. Because when you get that stench in your nose, like it stays with you for a few days. And like the only way to get it out is like to put some kind of smell in there that's strong, that's not as strong, but that kind of covers it. And lepers were people that were walking around with dead bodies. I mean, literally their limbs are rotting. Can you imagine the pus and the, like, and Jesus would spend time with these people. I mean, Jesus showed grace to people who were out of their minds. They were, they were possessed by demons. It was what we would describe as people who are mentally ill. And so it's not the guy at Starbucks is asking you nicely for money. It's the guy at Starbucks that you feel like is going to chase you across the parking lot. That you're running from. Jesus would turn toward them, approach them, and spend time with them. It made no sense. I mean, it's almost like Jesus would extend grace to people. It, it, 
it's almost as if the more bankrupt a person seemed to be, the more grace Jesus extended. And so how does that work for us? I mean, so how do we get it? I mean, is that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to become that bankrupt? The great American theologian Al Pacino once said, I asked God for a bike, but I know God doesn't work that way, so I stole a bike and asked for forgiveness. Is that the way grace works? We all know it. No, that's not grace. But a lot of people live that way, don't they? Even we live that way sometimes. I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. We treat grace like it's a get out of hell free card. I can kind of, I'm good with God. I grabbed that life preserver back then. I'm on this boat headed for the eternal shore. I'm good. I have some fun along the way, do what I want to do. What is grace? How do we get it? People who think that, that grace is like what Al Pacino described, they've never met Jesus. They don't know grace. Because when you come to understand the depths of Jesus' love for us, the depths of his sacrifice in our place for our sin, you come to understand that grace is not cheap. In fact, it's so much more valuable than anything that we've ever come in contact with before. Grace is transforming. Grace is all-encompassing. Grace is life-changing. And many of you have experienced it. You, know, you don't always see it. Grace gives us the ability not only to break free from um, struggles and patterns of sin, but grace is so powerful that grace gives us at times, I'm not saying always, but at times grace gives us the ability to break free from even the desire of sin. I mean, that's powerful. I'm not saying all the time. I'm not saying completely. But we come to understand that what we thought was fun isn't fun. And we come to understand that, that, that repentance is a good thing, that Jesus' ways are always good, and it leads us to truly experiencing life and truly experiencing joy. And so we actually begin to desire the things that Jesus calls us to, the things that he desires. It's life-changing. It's transforming. And so how do we get it? And the answer is very simply, we come to Jesus. But it's, it's simple, but it's not simplistic. But it's also very, very deep. We come to Jesus. Look at the context of this passage. It'll help us understand how to come to Jesus. I, I just want to read the, the verses before it from Eugene Peterson's um, contemporary rendering the message. I won't even have to say anything about it. You'll understand the context. I think I'm going to back up to like verse 21. This is how Peterson describes it. This is what's going on before verse 25. He says, Next, Jesus let fly on the cities where he had worked the hardest, but whose people had responded the least, shrugging their shoulders and going their own way. Doomed to you, Chorazin. Doomed, Bethesda. If Tyre and Sidon have seen half of the powerful miracles you've seen, they would have been on their knees in a minute. At Judgment Day, they'll get off easy compared to you. In Capernaum, with all your peacocks strutting, you're going to end up in the abyss. If the people of Sodom 
had had your chances, the city would still be around. At Judgment Day, they'll get off easy compared to you. Abruptly, Jesus broke into prayer. Like, that's the context for where Jesus is at mentally. I mean, Jesus is, is angry. Righteously. He's not raging. He's angry. And he's angry that people have been unwilling to come to him. And then he breaks into this beautiful prayer, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declares, he prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And the first thing you see that Jesus teaches us is, in order to come to Jesus, we have to have humble hearts. Like Jesus is not saying here that Christianity, he's not dumbing down Christianity and saying that Christianity is only for the weak-minded. That's not what he's saying here when he says you got, he says that you've shown it to little children. Jesus here is saying, yes, all may come to me. All may come, but the only ones who will come are the ones who are needy, the ones who are desperate. And so Jesus invites us to himself, but we'll only come if there's a humility that's within our hearts. Secondly, if you look at verse 26, he goes on and he says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is saying that in order for us to come to him, we have to be humble in heart, but that we come to him because it's the Father's pleasure that we would come to him. It's God's pleasure that he would know us. It's his gracious will that we would be his children. Like, do you get that? The Father who has lived with the Son and Spirit in perfect community did not come to us because he was lonely. He did not come to us because he had, was in need of anything. He didn't create us because something was missing. But it was his pleasure. Now, how many of y'all have, uh, you remember when you had a first child or you know somebody, maybe you're an aunt or uncle, or, and, and you have a niece or nephew, and you remember that first child? And people on social media now are like, you know, they're, I, I saw uh, Matt, one of our friends, he kicked a soccer ball and it exploded, you know, with the color. And so they're having a girl. It was pink. And um, so they're doing all these, like, different ways in which their gender reveals. And, uh, like, how many of you know the joy of a parent in that first child? Like, y'all don't, you're not aware of this because you don't print pictures anymore. They're just, they're all on your phone until you lose your phone and then you don't have them anymore. You drop in the toilet, all your pictures are gone. But um, back in the day when we printed pictures, like, you get real embarrassed when, when your second child goes, or your third child goes, like, so where are my pictures? And you're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're in this book. And then they go, and those six books over there are for the first child? Yeah, you know, camera kind of broke. Like, no, parents are excited. And, man, they're taking pictures during every developmental stage, right? And Jesus is crazy about you. It was the Father's pleasure that Jesus would make himself known to you and to me. Thirdly, 
Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and not one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So we get God's grace when we have humble hearts because it was the Father's pleasure and through Jesus' revelation. We only get grace through Jesus' revelation. And don't miss this. Jesus' revelation has been made known to us. Ephesians 3.10 says, The manifold wisdom of God has been made known to who? His church. That's what Ephesians is all about. Manifold wisdom of God has been made known even, I think it goes on, it says, even to those spirits that are like in the heavenly realms. It's talking about evil spirits. Even Satan's demons become aware of God's manifold wisdom and, and the glory and the goodness of God through God making himself known through Jesus coming to us, the church. Which means, if you keep reading in Ephesians, it says that we're his hands and his feet. And so he, Jesus is saying, I'll make my revelation known of myself, of the glory of God, to you and through you. Which also means that those who don't know God's glory and don't know the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus and the love that we're talking about and the gospel, it's only gonna get, they're only going to get it through us as the Spirit reveals it. And so we're needed. But let me tell you a little secret. You're only going to get it through us. And I'm only going to get it through you as the Spirit reveals it. Like It's not something that's revealed alone. And that's why we need one another. That's why we need to show up on Sunday mornings. And it's hard to do. It's especially hard to do in a church this size. You guys know why large churches are popular, don't you? You can hide. And we need to keep our kids in the service as much as we can. I know you parents think they're distracting. They're needed. Because we need to learn how to become more like little children. Because they're honest. Elijah was over here playing this morning. He's not usually here. He's with the pins this weekend. And the, the bottom half came off his Lego man. And some of y'all over here heard him scream, My pants came off! I'm naked! And that's how most of us feel on Sundays. Because we're around a small group of people and we're scared that our neediness is going to be perceived. That our vulnerabilities are going to be shown. And that's scary. And the truth of the matter is that's the only way we're ever going to find healing. Because Jesus came and he is willing to be vulnerable on our behalf. He's willing to be needy for us on the cross. So that we could find forgiveness and reconciliation and hope and healing. We get it through Jesus' revelation. Can't experience grace alone. But secondly, so how do we get it? Big question, I'm going to fly through this. Why don't we get it? Like, why don't we get it? And I think for most of us, we think all Jesus wants is to forgive us of our sin. When the fact of the matter is, yes, Jesus has, does want to forgive us of our sin. But he's come to give us life. And he says he's come to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. Which means there's a lot more to the gospel that needs to be unpacked than what most of us have realized. And look at what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He tells us how he's going to give us that life abundantly. He says, Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he tells us how to get grace. He says, come to me. But he uses this weird analogy. He says those who labor are those who are, um, I grew up, King James Version, weary. Literally exhausted from the journey. Are trying to make life work. I asked you earlier, are you weary? Have you ever been tired before? Have you ever been exhausted? I, I remember... Um, a mission trip going to Haiti. We, we went 10 weeks after the earthquake, and I took a group of people from Nashville, a, a bunch of medical personnel who, like, pushed me into going. It wasn't really my plan. I went as a chaperone. And it was 10 weeks after the earthquake, and we show up at the airport, never make our flight out of Nashville. And uh, there's problems with the plane. We go to rebook, and they say, it's spring break. There's not a flight for three days to Miami. And we said, forget this. We got 12 suitcases full of medicine. We're going. And we went and rented a car. And we, we did that 13-hour drive in like, kids, close your ears, like 10 or 11 hours. I mean, we were flying. We said, if you got to go to the restroom, you better not drink. Because we're filling up on gas and we're not stopping again until we run out of full tank of gas and need something. I mean, we were, we were getting there. We got there. It was one of the craziest experiences of my life. We unloaded on the tarmac, went to a warehouse to get our luggage. Airport was completely shut down. We got on a tap-tap and sat back there for two or three hours waiting, like, for the rest of our team to come in. We finally drive up out of Port-au-Prince, like, way up in the mountains. We set up our tents on this concrete slab. We go into dinner, and, and the guy who's there from Haiti, uh, he goes, uh, okay, now we're going to revival services. We got this little stone building. It's got like three light bulbs in it. And I'm literally standing at the pew. I've been awake for two days straight. And I am trying to worship and I'm doing this. I'm falling asleep standing up. And I'm, I'm scared that I'm literally going to knock myself out on the pew. <laughs> I'm like, I was tired. I finally just sat down. Have you ever been tired, so weary, so exhausted? And I'm just sorry, that's physical emotionally, spirit, that you're just like, I don't know if I want to keep going. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, come to me, all who are weary. And then he uses this term, he says, heavy laden. This is a picture of a pack animal, a beast of burden being weighted down with all the things that you would think of that are needed for making life work. Now, in this context, who's Jesus talking to here? Because he's talking to the irreligious. There were always the irreligious who kind of curious, showing up, seeing what Jesus had to say. But he's mainly talking to the religious. And get the picture of what he's describing here. He's talking to the religious. So he's talking to you and me. He's talking to folks who had, they had heard the first, they, some of them even had the first five books of the Bible memorized, if they were really serious. So they knew the Torah well. They had heard the 613 commands of the law, but they grew up in a society where those 613 commands had been turned into an oral law called the Talmud that was literally thousands of laws. And so it was stuff like, hey, if uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, how do you keep it holy? Like, how do you not work? Well, don't work. Well, what is work? Well, so what if I want to build a fire? What if it's cold? Well, the Talmud would tell you, how much firewood you could carry, and how far you could carry the firewood. I mean, do you get the sense of how oppressive this had become? And this wasn't God's law. Like God's, What was the purpose of God's law? 
God's law was given, the Torah was given originally. We just read through Leviticus, if you're doing CBR journal readings. And, and all that about the tabernacle and the sacrifices, all that was what? It was to point to Jesus. And the law was given to teach a society how to live. Like, how to live how? Horizontally? Yes. How to live vertically? Yes. So it's things like, hey, when a man goes to work, can a man's wife still be his wife when he gets home from work? Like basic stuff. How to live in a society. Don't commit adultery. Be kind to your neighbor. But also honor the Lord, right? Remember the Lord is holy. So it's how to live horizontally and how to live vertically. But what's the problem with the law? People couldn't do it. And so the point of the law was to point people, all the sacrifices were to point people to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus and to point them to the fact that they need a Savior. And here's my question. Why don't we get grace? Because we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the answer is because we stopped coming to Jesus. Because we think that all Jesus wants to do is save us from our sin, and we think that's already happened And so most of us are just sitting, twiddling our thumbs on that boat called eternity, headed for that shore called glory, and we're just waiting for that day when Jesus is going to come back. And the gospel's really small and pretty impotent for most of us in our lives. And most of us, as we sit twiddling our thumbs on that boat, are just trying to be good little Christian law keepers. Most of us are trying to be loving and obedient and sacrificial, and it doesn't work. It doesn't. I'm going to talk more about that next week. I'm going to show you a picture of that and a story from Luke. But it doesn't work to try to be loving and obedient and sacrificial. Because it's mainly motivated by guilt. If you do anything in your life because you should do it, it's motivated by guilt. And most of your Christian life is motivated by guilt. And love is motivated by grace. And when we come to understand the depths of God's love for us, we're going to look more at that next week, and you're going to see how you can do that as you come in contact to better understand your need. We begin to pick up on the fact that God loves us. And that our lives are lived not out of guilt or not what we should do or not what other people are expecting, but we truly start to live. I'll say it again, if my need for God's grace is limited to my sin, then my need for Christ becomes less as I grow up into Him. And that's a problem. We don't get God's grace because we don't understand. And I don't get God's grace because I don't understand that I don't have to try to be enough because Jesus is enough. And when we come to understand not only that Jesus is enough, but that because of Jesus, the Father looks at us and He says that we are enough. When we get that, we get released to really love and to really live. Most of us are still caught up in a Christian worldview that says you are what you do, you are what you accomplish, you are what your giftings are, and you are what other people think of you. And that's not at all what the gospel says. Really quick, how do we keep it? 
Look at 29 and 30. I'm going to be super short. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What's a yoke? It's what you put around an ox. It keeps the ox in line. You can steer him. You can work an ox or a mule with a yoke on. Or, or two, you can get three times the amount done. And it keeps them parallel. It keeps them together. And so when, the, when Israel would hear this, they would say, Take my yoke upon you. They would think the oppression of Egypt, the yoke that they had taken on, or they would think the yoke of the law. And Jesus is saying that his yoke is light. How? How does that make any sense? Jesus is saying it's not oppressive. Now, why would Jesus use a tool or a metaphor of a tool that, that, that is just, man, nothing but labor? Like, who wants to be an ox? Like, who wants to be a mule? They even have those at the zoo. Nobody wants that, Right? And Jesus said, you take my yoke on, and you'll find rest. How could that be a positive metaphor? Especially a metaphor that could lead to rest for our souls. What does that mean? I think Jesus is saying that we will find a rest from longing to be forgiven. That we will come to rest in the fact that we are forgiven, not because of us, but because of Jesus that we will find a rest from longing to be enough. Because Jesus is enough. That we will find a rest to just be me. To just be you. That we will become more human. As God has made us in His image. To enjoy Him forever. To enjoy being delighted in. To enjoy hearing I'm proud of you. To enjoy knowing that God sings over us like a father or a mother sings over their child. You say, how could that even be possible? Because of Jesus. But we come to experience it as we come to Him. And it all started with, come to me. Come to me. What does that look like? What does that look like on Monday morning? Right. Little, little picture. I'll end with this illustration. <clears throat> um, I've been out of town most of the uh, three days of the week. Katie and I had get back um, on uh, Friday, and I said, "Hey, I'm gonna grill some burgers. I'm, I'm smoking charcoal." I said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna do it. You know, we're gonna not do it on the gas grill. We're gonna we're gonna smoke some burgers on the charcoal grill." So I get the charcoal going. I'm standing outside. It's hot. I look up the street. And I uh, see somebody walking down the street. I'm always paying attention on my street, who's there and what's going on. And don't really recognize who's walking. And I look up and I see, oh, that's my buddy Terrell. Terrell's here today. And Terrell's buddy, he's, how are you, 21, 22? 24. Terrell's a man. Terrell's walking down the street. And I'm going to be honest, I hadn't seen Terrell. Uh, I'd kind of seen him, but I hadn't, he hadn't been down to my house for several months. And in that moment, I, I thought, like, I hadn't seen Terrell in a while. I thought, what does Terrell need? And I thought, and I don't usually do this. I, I'm usually sarcastic. I try to be funny. Um, I don't usually show my feelings. But I thought, you know, I could have done the, hey, stranger, or, or hey, who, hey, my name's Brad, who are you? Or could have done the whole, uh, what you been up to? I could have done that whole line, you know, that whole thing. But I thought, 
No, I think Terrell needs to be welcomed. And so we, we said, hey, hey, and he starts coming down the driveway. And as he gets close to me, I said, hey, man, it's good to see you. And I did this, didn't I? Now, how do you think Terrell responded to that? Do you think Terrell went, man, I'm so sorry I haven't been down here. I've been busy at Walmart. You know I work second shift and it's late. Do you think that's what Terrell did? Mm -mm. You know what Terrell did? (laughs) He surprised me. Terrell knows how to give a hug. Because he's kind of in between a big teddy bear and a grizzly bear. he's, He's not a big boy. He's a big man. And I did this, and the next thing I know... This is being done to me, and he's picked me up, and he's shaking me like this. I mean, Terrell knows how to give a good hug. <laughs> and he put me down, and he gave me a big old sweaty hug, and, and we talk, and he comes in, and he's here this morning. Now, I wonder if Terrell, I haven't asked him, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you, but I love you. And I don't feel like Terrell would have felt loved if I would have said, hey, man, what you, where you been? If I would have laid a guilt trip on him. And I think for a lot of us, we think God's laying a guilt trip on us. When God is saying, do you see the depths of my love for you? You're not going to give your child for me, but I gave my son for you. Do you see my love? That the Father is saying, come to me. Not because you should, and some of y'all have been shouldn't all over yourselves your whole life, but because you can. And because I love you. 